0: Hi, my name is Martin Purnell, and welcome to Off Grid Christianity, a weekly podcast for those who go or don't go to church and for those of the disillusioned. This podcast series is to encourage via conversation and not necessarily change your mind prior to listening. You can contact us as well by email, ogc at accessradio.biz, and check out our Facebook page, Off Grid Christianity, and we have our own website now, offgridchristianity.co.uk. Please enjoy today's guest, which is a sequel to episode 59, Jesus and Women in the Gospels. Let's get beyond the sound bites. And the guest then was Jeannie Kendall. Whilst recording this episode, I thought we need a sequel, but from Paul's perspective. And I've heard from other listeners as well who share the same thought. We're calling this episode Why Paul Championed Women but has been misrepresented. It features the same guest as episode 59, Jeannie Kendall. But who is she? We'd better find out as I welcome back, Jeannie. Hi, Jeannie. For those who don't know you, who are you?
1: Hi, Martin. It's great to be back with you again. I'm, in theory, a retired Baptist minister. The, in theory, is because I've got two part-time jobs and do all sorts of other things. Somebody actually just this morning said I should call it portfolio ministry. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm busy in doing all sorts of fabulous things. I live down here on the South Dorset coast, but I'm currently looking out the pouring rain. It's not looking great today. I'm married and I've got two grown-up children and two fabulous grandchildren who also keep me on my toes in all kinds of ways, including theological ones. They're Ooh. always asking me deep, difficult questions.
0: Well, that's good. Hopefully they'll, they'll listen to this podcast and uh, they'll report back to us what they thought.
1: You never know. My granddaughters may, may well, actually. Oh, yeah.
0: good. And of course, I must remember there's a difference between Portofino and Portfolio. I'd rather be in Portofino, I think. That's in on the Italian coast somewhere, isn't it?
1: Ah, oh, well, oh, you see, you're more travelled than I am. <laughs> yeah.
0: Right, well, let's go for it then. We've called this podcast Why Paul Championed Women but as Being misrepresented. I think it's only fair that we just give a basic outline as to why we're doing this. So why are we doing it from your perspective?
1: Well, certainly when I first became Christian, which was a while ago now, but I kind of inherited this view because it was implied rather than spoken that, you know, Paul said women shouldn't teach in church, that he was anti-women. Um, and there's all sorts of other teaching around it, which I didn't find so much, um, like women are more easily tempted coming from teaching about Eve. It's women's job to keep men from misbehaving, you know, women's job to keep sexual ethics. Um, but And particularly the whole thing about wives are meant to obey husbands and be subject to male leaders. And I was just kind of well partly taught that but more imbibed it really and then uh, later on I started to question that and clearly have questioned it quite a bit because I am now uh, a Baptist minister and so teaching regularly in churches. That journey was a really obviously a really important one for me personally but I think it's a very important one for both women and men actually as they wrestle with how we all fit together in terms of um, Christian lives and Christian work and All kinds of aspects of home
0: life, too. No doubt we'll talk on that about women being in ministry later on. In fact, we will be talking about that and the views that other people share that is of the other side saying, no, women should not be in ministry. Hopefully, people will get an understanding of this. That if you do have an issue, please, please, please listen to it all the way through, do some research. And if you want to contact us at the end, by all means, please do. You know, but just write to us in love, please, and not Mr. Angry from Pearly type sort of letters. We don't need that sort of thing. Well, I certainly don't. So, I just have a feeling that today's podcast, Jeannie, is going to be subtitled, Context is Everything. And uh, we've had an email, and the person who uh, who wrote in said he'd like to know your views on what Paul was forbidding in 1 Timothy 2, verses 12 to 13, and why you think it doesn't apply today. Context is Everything? Well, his church is a small congregation, and they're about to vote on returning to male-only leadership plus preaching. Quite a few of the women are in favour of male-only leadership, etc., So if context is everything, when would you like to answer this question? As I'm assuming we need to do some background work, as I just said, context is everything. So do you want to do it now or later on? Your call.
1: Yeah, I think we do need to do a bit of background to kind of make sense of that. Um, But that raises quite an important thing, I think, Martin, which it can be a bit, feel a bit divisive that, oh, well, it's, it's the men that want women to not be teaching and so on. That is not at all always the case. There are men who are fantastic champions of women teachers and I've got many men, male colleagues who've been very supportive of me and others as well. So I think it's really important that we understand that it's to do with how people grapple with the scriptures rather than their gender. And context is everything because we've only got half of Paul's letters. And in all the things that we discussed today, we need to remember that we've only got his half. And so it's a bit like trying to understand half a conversation, you know, if you hear someone's conversation on the phone and um, you only hear their end, it's quite difficult sometimes to work out what actually is going on, isn't it? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, all the ways we go through, we need to remember we've only got his half.
0: And am I right in saying that if we had all his letters, then 2 Corinthians would actually be 3 Corinthians because it's like a sequel to 2 Corinthians?
1: Yes, it is thought that there is a what's called a missing letter in between. And that just kind of highlights the whole thing that we're trying to read back into half a conversation but also paul wrote in greek and greek is different from english or ancient greek what's different from english probably would still be wouldn't it um and so some of the kind of finer points of the way that he used language we don't have in english we've got one word for where he has several yes and i'm sure we'll come on to this but we kind of need to bear all of those things in mind in, in the conversation, as well as, of course, as you already said, being gracious and loving with one another in our different understandings.
0: You'd think he would have written in English, though, don't you? I mean, what's, what's, Paul, what were you thinking?
1: Very inconsiderate, but it's one of many questions I'll ask him <laughs> when we finally meet. Yeah. I think the other thing I'd want to preface it with is what Paul said in Galatians, where he famously says, in Christ Jesus, we're all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. And then says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This was an incredibly shocking and revolutionary statement to make. Yes. And so I think that really underpins a lot of the things that we're going to grapple with in our conversation.
0: Just say that verse again so that we can have it at the back of our mind.
1: Yeah, so it's uh, Galatians 3, and it's 26 to 28. But 28 is, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus.
0: So we'll assume then that the question about uh, male-only leadership uh, will come out later on. And I've got a feeling that we should split the podcast into sections, if that's okay, Jeannie. Uh, How about you choose the order, but I give you the headings, which are cultural background, Roman versus Greek versus Jewish versus any other nationality. That's number one. Number two, husbands and wives. Number three, women and church leadership in Paul's time. Four, what Paul thought of women in the church. Five, that letter, as in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34, women to remain silent. Six, dress and hairstyles. And lastly, anything else. Which one do you go for first?
1: Yeah, I think I think we need to go for the cultural background, but I'm just smiling, thinking at this point people are switching off thinking, oh, this podcast's gonna last three hours. I'm I'm going home. He says <laughs> reassure people that they're not all gonna take forever, but they're important things for them to cover. But yeah, we need we need to wrestle a bit with the cultural background, really, because as you said, context is everything, and that was Paul's context.
0: Well, let's go for it then. Tell me more, please, young Jeannie.
1: So I think underpinning a lot of the difficulties that we wrestle with is the Greek attitude for women, because Greek culture and thinking influenced a lot of other cultures, um, which we'll probably come back to. But the Greek culture of, of the kind of just before Christ and around that time was really quite disdainful towards women. So Socrates, I think most people have heard of Socrates, famous philosopher.
0: Played football for Brazil as well in the 1970 World Cup.
1: But not that Socrates, strangely, no. <laughs> so uh, he described women as being the weaker sex and actually said that being born a woman was a divine punishment. I mean, that's kind of, you can't get much more dismissive than that, can you really? Say that
0: again, being born a woman?
1: Uh, was a divine punishment. Oh, okay. Yeah, so clearly uh, some did upset him somewhere along the line. <laughs> but Greek women didn't take any part in social affairs or um, public affairs or anything like that. And then <laughs> one of his pupils was uh, Pluto.
0: Not a dog either. Oh
1: No, not the famous cartoon character. And then his pupil Aristotle, they continued that teaching that, and particularly around males were fitted to command, that obviously that kind of then filtered through into women, women should be led by men in all kinds of contexts. There's a particularly kind of worrying quote from a very famous Greek orator called, I won't pronounce all these right, again, if you're a scholar, forgive me, Demosthenes, who was a orator, And he said this, we have courtesans for our pleasure young female slaves for daily physical use, wives to bring up legitimate children and be faithful stewards in household matters. And and this for us, that's shocking, isn't it? We hear that statement and we think that's just horrific. But again, context is everything. This was a very different era, a very different culture. But it just underlines that women were seen completely differently in that time yeah if your wife it was a bit better but you were generally married off as a very young woman to an older man without choice in that so wasn't that great
0: well we know socrates is what 300 ish bc something like that that name that you had problems pronouncing indian and genese so we can get context when did he live
1: yeah so he was kind of a 380 to 320 ish bc so again about 100
0: okay. years before that's interesting, isn't it? Because three hundred years before Christ was basically like the, the wilderness years of the Bible, when we heard or read nothing really during this time. The Greeks were coming to the forefront and coming out with these amazing ideas that some people thought and everything else. And as we know, Socrates and co, they haven't been thwarted in their thoughts because we still know of them today.
1: Well, that's it. I mean, that kind of laid this massive foundation, really. So there were other attitudes to women, the Spartan women, which people kind of have often heard of, Yeah. they were strong women, they were powerful women. But Sparta, like Egypt, which also had much more equality in terms of male and female, they didn't give that kind of bedrock of philosophical ideas, which the Greek culture did. And so that's why the Greek attitude to women has had a far longer lasting effect than either of those more egalitarian cultures have.
0: So, what did Spartan women believe in then?
1: So they had a lot of um, freedom. They had political responsibilities. At one point in their history, women owned two-thirds of the land. Wow. So a much stronger attitude. And I- Egyptian women, although that's often been misunderstood because you've got these massive statues, haven't you? Egyptian statues to male figures. Yes. But actually, if you look at Egyptian art, for example, they're often depicted holding hands, men and women, husbands and wives. So, again, it was more equal. So it wasn't perhaps fully equal, but more equal. But, again, they've not left that huge kind of legacy in terms of how we view things.
0: Yes. Egypt and their Egyptian thoughts on one side, but if you've grown up in the Old Testament times and the beginning of Christianity in the Middle East, in what we now know as Israel and around that, 2,000 years ago, it was predominantly Greek in thoughts, indeed, would I be right in saying that, although the Romans were there?
1: Uh, yeah, so the, the Greeks, that was there kind of, if you like, as a, a foundation. Obviously, the Roman attitudes were also important, and being that little bit further away, some Roman women did have more freedom than some of the other cultures that would have been around. So, in theory, a Roman woman was equal, with, well, not equal with her husband, but a kind of in partnership, their comrade. But even so, women were very much seen as objects of pleasure or sources of temptation in kind of Roman thought. The Roman philosopher Lucretius actually said that love makes a man miserable. I'm not sure that many men I know would agree with that. Hopefully not my husband anyway. (laughs) And uh, Plutarch, who some people have heard of, Roman philosopher, he said that husbands should be kind as they are to their their wives, as they are to their horses. (laughs) It's not exactly a kind of ringing endorsement. Again, a bit mixed. So in theory, there was some cooperation and they were operating as comrades, but not not so. And of course, many people have heard of the ghastly practice of exposing babies, where babies were simply left in the elements in that time. And this was really partly a way to, if you just didn't have any money, you just leave the baby out in the elements. Um, It's unclear how often that happened, but certainly it appears to have happened more with girl babies both because they were less valued, but also because um, if you had a a girl who'd grown up to marriageable age, you had to find them a dowry. Yes. Certainly more girls were left to die in that way than
0: boys. Wow. And just to get it into context as well, how do we know that women were sort of second-class citizens during this time, apart from Paul's letters? How do we know that?
1: Uh, Well, I guess our particular need to know it, if you like, is because of the Jewish ways that Jewish women were treated, because, of course, Paul was first and th- foremost a, a Jew, yeah. a Pharisaic Jew, so very, very schooled in Jewish thought. And we we certainly know that Jewish women, and this is an interesting one, as a bit of an aside, because if you look biblically at some of the Old Testament women, they were amazing. Yeah. So one of my private heroes or heroines is Hagar. mean, um, our very First podcast that we did um some while ago now we spoke about Hagar. Hagar is the first theologian in the Bible. She named God as the God who sees. She's an extraordinary character, being thrown out, of course, by Abraham and Sarah. Um she had the son Ishmael and so but she's the first theologian. And then you've got other remarkable women in the Bible, Ruth, of course, who if you read between the lines of the account in Ruth, the way she got Boaz was probably. A little bit on the naughty side. That's definitely another podcast. You've got Deborah, who's you know a military aggressor, really. So you've got these very strong women featured in the Old Testament, and yet by the time of the New Testament, some of the practices were, you know, for example, a um, a Jewish woman would would serve her husband food and then stand uh, while he ate. And we talked about various other things when we looked at Jesus and women, didn't we?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do we know that though? That you know, women stood whilst their husbands ate. How do we actually know that?
1: Well, I mean, of course, the Bible's a, a particular account of the New Testament anyway to do with, with Jesus and his life and death and resurrection and so on. But there's lots of historians um, that speak about things at the time and scholars who talk about life at that time. Philo is one that sometimes people have heard about. who's a Jewish scholar, but actually was in Alexandria. Interestingly, he tried to sort of link the teaching of Plato and Aristotle with the teachings of the Old Testament. So again, you can see how that kind of strong influence from Greek culture was finding its way into into Jewish thought as well and life at that time.
0: Got you. What do you want to tackle first? Husbands and wives, women in church leadership, uh, women in the church, the letter and hairstyles. What do you want to go for first?
1: Uh, Let's have a look at husbands and wives, shall we? Go for it. Most of these kind of debates come around specific texts which people have wrestled with. The husbands and wife, wives wrestling is taken from Ephesians 5, which is quite a long passage, particularly to read the one that's caused all the, the mayhem. Well, that's at the beginning. So it's verse 21 is submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's important, the submitting to one another. We'll come back to that. So that's actually aimed at the community, not at husbands and wives. And then he goes on to say, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. And that's the bit. Now, actually, that passage in Ephesians has a lot more to say to husbands, if you kind of count the verses up. I haven't, but there is a lot more. Um, So it's important to note that actually Paul has far more to say to husbands and how they should act than he does to wives. The other thing is obviously he is speaking specifically to husbands and wives, so we can't kind of extrapolate from that what Paul thinks about women, because he's talking very specifically in a marriage situation, and his words also do assume faith in Christ. So he's not one; he's still wanting to talk to the Christian community, not to society at large. But the biggest issue that we have is he, as we said earlier, wrote in Greek, coiny Greek, which was The most commonly understood language at the time. And it is difficult to translate into English. There are some words that we are unclear about. And certainly frequently we have one word where there are several in that form of Greek. So, shall we launch into the head issue?
0: Go for it. I'm sitting comfortably. Go for it.
1: The husband is the head of the wife. So, there are two Greek words for head, unlike English. The first one, and again, excuse my pronunciation if you're a scholar, is arcane. Now, that was leadership, and it also meant point of origin, like where a river started. It's where we get archives, that kind of word from, or even archaeology. OK, and archaeology,
0: and yeah.
1: Now, that was always used for ruler or for chief or for the most important. OK, Arche. Paul didn't use that word. He could have used that word. He might have been expected to use that word, but he didn't use that word. He used kathali. That was not used ever of leadership or ruler. So you can immediately see that not only context is all, but language is all.
0: And to get this into perspective as well, I remember years and years and years ago in church when we were looking at the word love. And if you take the Greek word for love, well, actually, all of a sudden, you've got four versions of yes. the word love. So if we've got eros, agape, Uh, the two others video and the last one they all mean love (laughs) yes that's all we have in the english language love if you can have that with the word love and four different words in greek this is what you're saying here as well
1: yeah exactly english is a bit of a blunt instrument um, in some ways yeah and of course to complicate the issue further the old testament was written in hebrew uh in paul's day they used the greek translation of the hebrew the septuagint and that's what Paul used and quoted. So you can see it becomes even more complex. So we can assume that Paul, if he had wanted to use the term that the husband should rule over um, the wife, he would have used arche, and he didn't. So he's, he's just chosen deliberately to use a different word. The word that he did use, gefalli, was sometimes used of leadership or not so much leadership, but used in a military context. But that was more of first into battle. So there was a sense of an equality of soldiers, but somebody has to be physically first. Mm -hmm. So, again, it was nothing about being boss or ruler or anything else. And the message is quite helpful here, actually. Eugene Peterson, of course, was um, sadly no longer with us, but was a biblical scholar. Um, And he translated it as the husband provides leadership to his wife the way Christ does to his church not by domineering, but by cherishing. Yeah. Yes, okay, there's, there's still a leadership element, but that's a very, very different feel, isn't it, to this kind of more complex one. Mm. And then, of course, there is the being subject to, which is the other kind of key words that we need to wrestle with. And again, people tend to think, well, that means obey. If you're subject to somebody, you obey them. We, we think perhaps kingship, don't we? Or, yes. But actually, Paul, In this passage, he's talking about three different kinds of relationship. So he's talking about the whole Christian community, where he starts off, submit to one another, or be subject to one another. It's the same thing. He talks about husbands and wives, and he talks about Christ and the church. Well, a whole community can't obey each other, can it? So where he's saying, be subject to one another or submit to one another, he's not talking about everybody obeying everybody else. I mean, it would be chaos. Are you obeying me this morning? Oh, no, I think you're obeying me this morning. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Doesn't make any sense. There is a word for obey, gupecheo. And again, Paul does not use that word here. But he does elsewhere about us obeying, about children obeying parents. So he knows that word. He can use that word. He chooses not to use that word. And there's another word which was used for government. For example, in Acts 5, it talks about it being necessary to obey God rather than men. And that's Pitarchio. He doesn't use that word either. What Paul does uh, use is another word, a third word, hupotasso. It's a rather, a rather lovely word, makes me think of hippos for no particular reason. So hupotasso is never used of children or slaves who would be obedient. Now, this is where a bit of grammar. How's your grammar this morning, Martin?
0: I haven't spoken to her this morning. I think she's all right.
1: (laughs) There are three voices in grammar. Okay. So there is the active voice. There is the passive voice and there's a middle voice. So let me give you an example. Okay. Take the word, the verb teach. Okay. Tiv is to teach. Passive is to be taught. And we don't have it in English, but they did have in Greek a middle voice, which would be something like teaching yourself. Okay. Okay. And actually, it's this that Paul uses here, the middle voice form. And so it's really difficult to describe, but he's really appealing actually to wives here. He's not describing them, but he's appealing to them. And actually, a better translation would be tend to the needs of or support. Or be responsive to your husbands, which is a very again a really different thing, isn't it? A very different way of looking at the relationship.
0: Yeah. What comes to mind on this is that if this is the case, then why has the Bible been translated so badly? Ever since sixteen hundreds, well before that, but if we take the, the King James Version, we seem to have a mistranslation here on certain words. So why hasn't it been rectified if if this is the case?
1: Yeah, no, it's a very fair question. I think there's a couple of things. One is, again, context is everything. So the assumption historically would have been that's what Paul meant. Um, we've questioned that more. And we've questioned that partly because uh, we have more scholarship, we've had more access to more sources of information. So it's kind of a mixture of increased learning and also increased understanding that actually, that simply might not be what he was going to say. Some of that is looking at the wider context, which we'll come on to, of, of the ways in which Paul did honour women, for example. Yeah. As soon as you make an assumption about anything, you will then, if you're a translator, you will translate with that assumption, won't you? Yes. And so when the first translations, the very first translations were out, that was, that was kind of how it was done. Yeah. In the same way that now we understand that in some words that are used biblically were not, are not well-translated men some of them are better translated men or women. Not all of them, but some of them. So just as we understand that more now, we have a better understanding of, of the language that Paul used. Time and learning, I guess.
0: Yeah, we learn more.
1: We do. That can be quite threatening to people, I think, who, if you nibble around the edges, then then is the whole thing going to fall apart? But it isn't. But I think that's why sometimes people can get a little bit bristly. Because if one part of what they believe is, is maybe questioned, what I would call a non-gospel issue, you know, something on the edges, then they worry that the things in the middle, the really important and crucial things about who Jesus was and what he did for us, that that will be questioned. But that's not the case. So we, we need to be able to question the right things whilst holding on to the key things
0: like did jesus get resurrected after three days that is a key thing isn't
1: it, it is that it is totally key was was jesus god that is totally key for me at least i know perhaps some people might have um, different views but for me if that's not the case then why am I here really you know
0: uh, i sign up to that straight away great thank you right carry on sorry for the interruption
1: so and the third one to come back to which is actually kind of where where you went off at your little diversion earlier, was about love because husbands are called in Ephesians 5 to love their wives, aren't they? Mm-hmm. And we spoke about eros, which is sexual desire. We spoke about filio, which is fondness. We spoke about agape, uh, which is the word for, interesting, not so much with agape feeling as an attitude, an action, which is interesting, like in the Great, Great Commandment. Mm-hmm. And what Paul says is that husbands should agapeo their wives, they should, they should show their wives that extraordinary agape love, which again is, that's not about rulership, that's not about governing, that is about sacrificial God-like love towards their wives. So he, the way that he's speaking about both men and women, or husbands and wives, is honouring to them both, actually. So I think this passage, yes, yeah, it's been it's been misunderstood for sure. But I think Paul saw the husband as the head of his wife, like Christ is the head of the church. In other words, to nourish, to love, to serve, and similarly, that wives are there to be responsive of and supportive of each other. I don't think most people would would argue with a relationship like that. You know, I like to feel I've got one myself. But if certainly, if Paul did have obedience and ruling and that kind of thing in mind, he would have used a different word. That's the kind of bottom line. And it's important to understand, you know, his his talking about mutual support, which clearly he is here, it's radical. You know, this is a new model of being husbands and wives. It's a new model of being one and serving and helping one another. And you know, that makes it then so sad that his point was lost. You know, I can't imagine sometimes Paul and Gloria going, no, 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 that's not what I meant, <laughs> no, for sure. So, yeah, it, yeah. particularly ironic and sad that it's been misused in that way.
0: Okay. What else would you like to add to the husband and wives topic?
1: No, I think husbands, wives, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm good with that.
0: You're done on that one, are you? Yeah. So we'll put that down to Paul was definitely misunderstood what he was saying due to the language barrier yeah. because he didn't speak English. So basically that's his fault ours that's paul's fault end of
1: uh no no i think that's kind of misconstruing isn't it? It.
0: <laughs> context is everything they didn't speak english in those days yeah
1: context is everything <laughs> language and and culture and yeah looking back at something when we're we're not in that era
0: yes when we're not in that era which seems to be cropping up all the time now in newspapers oh well you've got to take into context you know we were in that era yeah Okay, thank you. So that's that one done. What are we going to go for next then, please, Jeannie?
1: Should we go for women in church leadership? Let's bite the bullet on that one, shall we?
0: Yeah, go for it.
1: So again, you know, we need to think of the background, the cultural background. Yes. Because mostly in that era, if women gathered for worship, it was all female. And actually, often it was kind of secret goddess worship. Um, Jewish women were allowed in the synagogue, but they were kept separate. They weren't counted as the 10. You had to have 10 people for a, sen- a synagogue worship service to take part, but they had to be men, not women. And there was some quite dodgy stuff around women and worship where, you know, there was temple prostitution and so on. Even at times in Jewish history, Eli's sons, really dodgy going on with them, which brought the judgment of God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there, there was some some difficult stuff even in Jewish worship and certainly in other other things. And the other important thing perhaps to remember is one of the big issues that early Christians faced was Gnostic Christianity, or Gnosticism, which sort of filtered into Christianity, and they taught that what you did with your body didn't matter. it was all about the spirit, but then if what you do with your body doesn't matter, that means you can have all kinds of dodgy stuff going on, because it doesn't matter because it's your body, it's not your spirit. Yes. And so Gnostic worship actually included holy weddings, which was basically people getting up to stuff they shouldn't get up to with, people they shouldn't get up to it with, and it was eventually banned by Constantine. And of course, in Roman, you had the famous Vestal virgins who were a kind of virgins that served the goddess Vesta. You know, there was an awful lot of really kind of seriously dodgy stuff around women and worship, which was not the women's fault.
0: Can I just say, for those who want to do some extra work on this, Gnosticism is with a silent G at the beginning, it is, not an N yes like gnome
1: yes very important otherwise you could go on a very long trip finding absolutely nothing out yeah but paul clearly in his letters he does expect women to be present in christian worship and we take that for granted but again that was radical this was not you know not the case in many forms of worship around him that's kind of a basis and of course our earlier podcast just to give it a little bit of a A plug about Jesus and women. That background is also important. Jesus' very radical um, attitude to women, which we we won't repeat. So go and have a listen if you've not listened before.
0: Episode 59.
1: So Paul, before he was a Christian, he did arrest men and women. Yeah. That's interesting, isn't it? Because clearly he saw women as important in the church. Otherwise, he wouldn't have bothered to arrest them. If they weren't important, you just arrest the men.
0: Also, wouldn't it be fair to say that because they were kicking up a bit of a storm as well, and so that's why I wanted to arrest them. The women? Yeah.
1: I didn't think they were particularly kicking up a storm in any way other than the mere existence of Christianity was kicking up a storm. That's true. You see, Paul, before he was converted, would have seen Christianity as a, a sect that was potentially problematic to um, Judaism. You know, he was, he was a, a solid Parasaic Jew. If you want to get rid of a sect or a group, who do you get rid of first? the leaders don't you yes remove all the leaders the rest of them will disappear so why why did he arrest both men and women i think it's because he did see the women as significant and important in this early grouping that he was trying to get rid of
0: when we look at the bible in the new testament there are some key women that are mentioned there and i can't remember is it was it priscilla
1: there are so there's a couple priscilla and aquila now that's interesting itself because names. Her first. um, and some people think that's because she was perhaps the the more significant. But certainly he just he does describe them as his co-workers. So clearly both of them were uh, workers along with Paul. And there was an early writer, don't ask me to name them because I can't remember who it is, but who who did say that she taught Apollos in Corinth. So you might remember at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, Paul is saying, you know, don't argue about I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. Apollos was a significant figure in the Corinthian church, and certainly it is thought that Priscilla may have taught Apollos. Yes. You know, at the end of Romans, for example, where he's commending people, as Paul often did at the end of his letters, he names 26 people, eight of whom were women. So clearly he does see women as significant. When he goes to Philippi, of course, he seeks out women at the riverbank, doesn't he? Uh, and the first convert in Europe is Lydia. Is a woman. Yeah. We read about that in Acts 16. So clearly, Paul thought it incredibly important to preach the gospel to men and women, rather than only teach it to the men, as would have been perhaps his Jewish practice, and then for the men to teach it to the women. No, he taught it to the women as much as he did to the men.
0: And if his conversion on the Damascus Road, and he had like a so 180 degree about turn, one minute he would have been Jewish and like women, you do as you're told sort of thing. And now this is a complete turnaround.
1: Yeah, I don't. I mean, I'm sure that wasn't the immediate thing on his mind as <laughs> as Jesus spoke to him and as his sight was restored. Paul spent quite a long time thinking and imbibing teaching and so on before he went on to what we know him for. Um, he, he spent yes. time in, in Thornton. So I'm, I'm sure that was an ongoing process of... And I mean, we don't know what he was like in his attitude to women when he was practicing Judaism. Um, He may have been more sympathetic than was prevailing culture, we don't know. But what we do know is that he was clearly had a positive attitude to women in the church. And he expected women, for example, to pray or prophesy, because he says in 1 Corinthians 11, women who pray or prophesy should have their head covered. We'll come back to head coverings maybe later.
0: Please do, yeah.
1: He's then, he's assuming that women are going to pray and prophesy. So when we come back uh, later to talk about women being silent in church, well, he clearly didn't mean that, that they never opened their mouths in church.
0: And also prophesy is the, the greatest of all the gifts.
1: Yeah, indeed. He did recognize women in the church. So that's the kind of, again, that's the sort of baseline. Then we come, of course, to that tricky passage as we do in 1 Corinthians 14, where he says in verse 34, women should remain silent in the churches, They're not allowed to speak but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their husbands at home for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church.
0: Yes. What's your view on this?
1: Well, first of all, clearly he didn't mean it literally because, as we just said, he speaks about how women should pray and prophesy. So he's clearly not meaning that, and I'm sure that he wouldn't be saying you know if we wanted to take paul's letters now and put them into practice we're not going to say women should can't sing a hymn in church so clearly he wasn't meant literally so
0: ah but it's, yeah can i just backtrack on that then yep. when he said about the prophesying bit was that for women in church or outside of church
1: no he speaks about them praying so that would have been in a um and prophesying so that would have been in the in public worship because it was in the context uh in one corinthians where he's talking about orderly worship. All right, okay. So again, remembering that he's only we've only got one side of the conversation. So he is clearly addressing a very specific issue in the letter and we don't know what the issue was. So we need to kind of bear that in mind. But it has been used of course to debar women from preaching. I had it quoted at me in, in the early days. Haven't had it uh have it once fairly recently in a completely different context. But where he is talking here, he's talking again about order in worship. And he talks about God being not a God of confusion, but of peace. Literally, it's um, not a God of disorder. So something was happening in the public worship that was creating a bit of chaos. Now, Paul would have been really sensitive to unruly mobs because, of course, Christianity was very early. If this was the Romans came down heavily and basically wiped out all the Christians at this point, then we wouldn't be sitting here. Um, and we see that in other ways, which won't go into here, but Paul was clearly sensitive to the possibility of something that could be construed to be some sort of attack on the Romans and, and bring down wrath, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in, in this passage, he talks about order in various ways, you know, only two or three tongues, and they must be interpreted, only two or three prophecies, and they must be weighed. And in that context, he talks about women must be silenced. So what does he mean? <laughs> Now, when he says they're not allowed to speak, this is not going to surprise you, Martin. There are several words in Greek for being silent. The first word, phemo, means muzzled, and he doesn't use that word. Then there's another word which is esukia, which is about entering into quiet and stillness. We're going to come back to that when we look at 1 Timothy. Here he uses the word Sigeo. And it's a word that's used of voluntary silence. That's very different, isn't it? So it's the same word that's used when Jesus is before quiet. This is the silence that Paul is asking for. If we think about earlier what we were talking about, about being caring about the needs of others and bearing that in mind, it would seem that Paul is saying here that women should choose to be quiet rather than contribute to whatever the disorder was that he was worried about and is addressing in the passage. Does that make sense?
0: Yes. (laughs) Keep going.
1: So now we come to verse 35, where he says it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Well, again, we've said that can't mean all of speaking. And again, there are 30 words, would you believe, for speak in Greek. And this one is the only word of all the words for Greek for speaking is the only one that only means talking. So there were lots of words that meant speaking to teach, speaking to pray and so on. This just means talk. And so it would suggest that actually what he's saying is, please don't interrupt the worship by talking.
0: Thank you. That confirms what I was taught from the sermons I've listened to, that is oh yes, what actually meant was that our women were nattering away know, through the church service. So Paul was being very polite, but also say, oi, shut it.
1: (laughs) It could have been that because them being new, the women congregating in worship, this would have been quite new. So they could have been a little bit catching up with one another. You know, how's it going? But it could also been that they were calling out questions. If as may have been the case, you know, could have kind of continued from synagogue worship, then they could have been calling out questions either to whoever's teaching or indeed to their husbands. We don't know. Again, we've only got
0: half. Yeah, that makes sense. As well, they had like the same learning style as me, where i you know, I won't understand it till I've completely deconstructed it and built it back up again. So they could have been doing that as well.
1: Then that could have could have all got a little bit out of hand, and so he's just calling, as he was with tongues and interpretations and prophecy and weighing the prophecy, he was just saying, let's just be calm in the way that we organise our worship, so that we're not going to be causing disruption, we're not going to be confusing people, and particularly we're not going to be creating mayhem, which might get us into trouble with the Romans. Yes. Or any other grouping at the time.
0: Expand on that, please.
1: Perhaps the best way to do it is the way that Paul spoke about slaves, which of course we would not in any way, shape or form take Paul's advice that slaves should submit to their masters, their rulers as being that we should therefore have slaves now and they should be submitting to people. We've understood for a fairly long time that slavery in any way, shape or form is wrong, which raises the question, why didn't Paul address that? Or at least specifically, why didn't he tell slaves to rise up and rebel? Yes, Yeah, But had he done that, bearing in mind the incredibly important place um, that slaves had in Roman life, and a complex place. So some of them were were really like professionals, but they were kind of enslaved in that profession. Some of them were very badly treated, so it was a complex situation. But there were were millions of slaves. If if the ones who were Christians had started to rebel, then undoubtedly the Roman army would have come down very heavy on them and wiped out pretty much the early Christian church. So I, I think that's why our... Our understanding, we kind of read that and think really Paul, why didn't you know why didn't you say it was wrong? He was protecting the gospel actually
0: I'm glad you said that because I was actually writing down. why didn't Paul go full throttle at the time? That was what I've written there because he could have done and say, right, we're starting with a clean sheet of paper, women, this is it, you know you're equal, you can preach in church, you can do this, you can do that, but he didn't, and I think what you're saying is the reason why he didn't do it it was because you have to choose your battles. And there was far bigger things to talk about at the time because he knew that the Romans would just come in and whatever little seedlings that you had growing would have just been wiped out. Basic summary? Yeah,
1: Paul's primary calling was, was to preach the gospel and to bring people to Christ. I suspect that Paul understood that in the longer term, as people understood what that really meant, as they understood exactly what he spoke about, that you are all one in Christ Jesus, going back to Galatians. That, that would lead to change in attitudes, but he couldn't start with that. The gospel needed to re- really take off to spread, people needed to be radically transformed by Jesus before that could happen. You can't kind of put the cart before the horse, I guess, is what I'm saying.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Well, we're getting context is everything big time now. Keep going. You're doing well.
1: Well, shall we grapple with Timothy?
0: Yeah, go on. This is for the person that wrote in, and he says, 1 Timothy 2, verses 12 to 13. Why doesn't it apply today? His church wants to go back to male-only leadership, and that includes preaching as well, since quite a few of the women are in favour of male-only leadership. So if context is everything, tell us more.
1: Well, let's, let's read that passage. 1 Timothy 2, verse 11 onwards. We need to read it really to understand the question. Well, I'm going to say Paul writes, just as a little bit of an aside, some people think this might not have been written by Paul. <gasps> I know, shock, horror, um, because early writers often use somebody else's name to give it a bit of kudos. I'm not saying that.
0: You're the second person that said that to me in the space of seven to ten days. Could have been one of his best mates sort of thing.
1: Yeah. So, you know, just to acknowledge that some people listening to the podcast will be saying, well, Paul probably didn't write it. Well, let's take it that he did.
0: Yeah, like Hebrews. Did he write Hebrews?
1: Oh, definitely not going there. (laughs) (laughs) Not today. Don't even know it was written by a man. But anyway, let's definitely not go. (gasps) So, 1 Timothy, back, back to the subject in hand. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. This is probably the strongest of the passages we've looked at, I think. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love and holiness with propriety. This is probably, well, no, I think definitely the most problematic of any of the passages that we're going to look at. I'm not sure that any of us on any side of any debate fully understand it. I'm just going to be honest about that. But to wrestle with it a little bit, it can read a woman, but it can also read wife and husband, just so we're aware. So we're not sure um, whether Paul is talking specifically in a marriage context or more generally. And we do need to remember the letters to Timothy, they're personal letters. They're not letters to a church, unlike Corinthians or Ephesians. Timothy was a young minister. There's clearly something going on in the church that he's written to Paul or Paul has become aware of. That is causing Timothy angst, and so the letter is to try and help him, Timothy. That's important because it, that's different, isn't it, from writing to the church? Yeah, yeah. And it does seem as though the church was had some sort of problem with some kind of doctrine or argument or something. But we don't know. Again, the old one side of the story. We don't know what the issue was. What is clear, what is interesting, and we need not to miss, is Paul did want women to be educated. He says a woman should learn he goes on saying quietness and full submission but he says a woman should learn that was radical in itself so we need to not forget that and verse 11 where he talks about a woman learning in quietness it's actually a really lovely word it's a word for kind of stillness it's not a word for being muzzled it's not a word she should shut up and learn it's a woman should learn gently and in a still way He'd have been a fan of mindfulness, you know, it's kind of that sort of gentle spirit of of listening and learning, a restful quietness in order to learn. That's what he's talking about here. Nothing about domineering. Now, it is possible that there were some women who were being disruptive. Might also be that he's concerned about something that's happening outside the church. If you think back to what we said earlier about help prostitution and all that kind of thing. Whether there was an issue there, whether perhaps women in the church were being accused of behaving inappropriately and then being linked to some of the other dodgy dealings, we don't know, but there could well have been something like that that he was addressing. It does seem we can't really avoid that in this specific situation Paul is suggesting the men teach. In this very specific situation that we don't know, as I say, it may be because there's been something happening that has been disruptive or people could have misunderstood we don't know but what I would say is this was a particular situation he's talking to Timothy it is not indicative of the entirety of Paul's thinking as we've seen actually
0: it's a personal letter to Timothy we don't know the circumstances surrounding it yeah okay if we were taking this to court How much of this is circumstantial evidence and how much of it is like, right, this is genuine?
1: How much of which is circumstantial? You mean that the kind of trying to work out what the situation was? Yeah. Yeah, that is circumstantial because we don't know. But because he clearly isn't saying in the rest of his teaching that women should be muzzled, we've kind of hopefully made that clear. He could have used those words and he doesn't. So we can infer that there was something very particular about this situation. That means he is speaking differently to Timothy than he might have done in another situation, but we don't know.
0: In this proverbial court of law then, where it says, if we're saying, can men and only men preach, women are not allowed to?
1: We would be saying no in the generality of Paul's teaching and his attitude to women and his naming of significant women and even his arresting of women. In everything else, that does not seem to be what Paul is saying. So there's something particular here that has caused him to give different advice. Situational ethics, if you like.
0: Okay, that's what we have to look at then. Yeah. It was a specific incident rather than a general feeling. Yeah. And I I like what you said as well about Paul. Paul's mission on this wasn't to completely wipe the slate clean, but to go out and preach the gospel to all nations. That's what he was trying to do.
1: Yes, yeah. So whatever it was here... You know, even a court of law, if you had one piece of evidence on one side, if you like, but you had fifty pieces of evidence on the other, it would be the fifty that you would go with. So I think we can say there's something here that made it different, but we are never going to know what it is. This side of Glory I'll add it to my list
0: of questions. Uh, yeah, when you speak to him, yeah, and he'll be going, yeah, well, as if anyone would argue over that point.
1: Yes, as if we'll care, of course, when we get there. Anyway,
0: <laughs> What's Q not to play golf.
1: The Adam and Eve reference, just to fairly swiftly deal with that, I think Paul is simply restating the story here. I don't think he's interpreting the story. And this is, again, probably because the Gnostic teachers who said that flesh is evil and spirit is good, they added to the creation story all kinds of stuff around it, saying Eve brought a great leap of enlightenment, for example, when she ate the apple, metaphorically. And Paul is just saying... No. Then <laughs> he's kind of wanting to stop the Gnostic train in its tracks as they go a whole different direction with the Adam and Eve story. So I, I think that's kind of we, we get tied up in that unnecessarily, I think. What probably is more confusing, and well again we're not going to have a definitive answer, is this thing about women will be saved through childbearing if they're continuing faith, love, holiness, and propriety. I mean I can't think for a moment that Paul is suggesting that woman will only be saved if she bears children because Paul is adamant elsewhere that the only grounds that we are ever saved is through faith in Christ. That was the bedrock of Paul's teaching. So whatever his meaning there is not meaning you become saved in that sense through childbearing.
0: I'll also put this in context because you said it's one-sided And what's coming to mind for me is the number of times I have conversations with my wife or my son over the phone. And what I say, they completely misunderstand because they have. And that's not because they're thick or anything else like that. It's just that they've got a different understanding. No, 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 no. No, what I meant was.
1: Yes.
0: yeah. And I'd like to think that everyone that's listening today has had that similar situation. Well, what I actually meant was, was this.
1: Yes. And you think of how often that happens in ordinary conversation with husbands and wives and families and so on. Yeah. Um, We are at least speaking the same language. (laughs) We've got a situation where where Paul is communicating it to us originally in a language that isn't ours. Yes. So it's no wonder, really, that we get ourselves in a bit of a pickle. Yes. So I think we can safely say he didn't mean that people were going to be saved, rescued, brought salvation, whatever language you want to use, by having children. He might have been referring to Eve. It says woman, but it could be she. So it could have been something to do with that, that he's trying to say, which we certainly don't understand if that's the case. Could have been a specific woman in Timothy's church that he was aware of. And he could be simply giving reassurance that she's going to be kept safe in childbearing, for we know Timothy had a wife. We know, we 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 just don't know. Or he could be saying more generally that if women were to behave in this way with faith and love and holiness and propriety, that they are more likely to be kept safe in an age where obviously childbearing wasn't safe. To be honest, Martin, this is one where we're not going to know. We're not going to know what Paul meant fully without that other half of the conversation. Could have meant, of course, also through the birth of Christ that women, all of us, will be saved through the childbearing of Mary giving birth to Christ. We don't know, it's just not clear. What is clear is Paul did want women educated because he says women should learn. He did believe in women being saved, which, you know, is good to know. And he ends it with the faith fundamentals, faith, love, holiness. So that's kind of where he wants to leave the conversation with Timothy. And it's just unfortunate that we we don't have the rest of it.
0: To summarise then, the gentleman who emailed me regarding 1 Timothy 2 verses 12 and 13 and that their small church is having an issue and that quite a few of the women say, no, it's time we revert back to male-dominated leadership and preaching. Summarise, what would you say?
1: Ultimately, of course, that will be the church's decision. (laughs) What I would say is that not to justify going back to all-male leadership. It's interesting that it's going back. So there must be, some again, some context to that that we're not aware of. But not to justify that from this passage, but to look at the whole of what Paul taught and the way in which he honoured women, the women that he names, what he says about women generally, rather than this passage, where it really is unclear what the issue was that he's addressing. And he's addressing it with Timothy, not to a church. And perhaps it's more important for a church making a decision to look at what Paul said to churches. And that's not to denigrate the letter to Timothy at all. It's yeah. to say, if you're making a church decision, have a look at what Paul said to churches. Take it in the more general context.
0: Just to put it into context as well, because I don't think you mentioned it at the top end, you do actually lecture at Spurgeon's College as well.
1: I teach on the pastoral supervision course.
0: Yeah, and you also take leadership training for ministers and, and people like that as well. So you're not just a Baptist minister. You have read the Bible quite a bit and you do know Quite a bit on the subject. I just wanted to get that into perspective as well. That I haven't just chosen any old bod straight off the street to talk about this. So context is everything. What should we go for next?
1: Well, I think the only thing left actually is the, the old dress and hairstyles.
0: Yeah, I'm looking forward to this.
1: Probably a slightly lighter way to end, I think. Again, let's remind ourselves that Paul's looking for unity. He said in Galatians, as we quoted a couple of times already, there is neither Jew nor Greek. So When he's talking about the gospel and preaching the gospel, he's looking for something fairly united. However, his difficulty and ours in reading it is that head coverings, the lengths, the styles for men and women had different meanings in different cultures. So Jewish women, for example, had their hair bound when not at home. We know that from the wonderful, glorious story of the woman anointing Jesus, where she uh, lets down her hair and there's a kind of Oh, yeah, she's dyed her roots. It was more, oh my goodness, we're going to have to do something. and didn't know what to do. Men covered their heads in worship. Women would have had them covered anyway, because they did in public, or their hair was burned up. But men covered their heads because of kind of this rather wonderful expectation of the Shekinah glory coming down and the kind of need to somehow protect themselves from the, the weight of glory. We don't really tend to go to church with that expectation, I think, do we?
0: On the whole. What do you mean by Shekinah for those that don't know?
1: So, the glory of God, the kind of um, the full presence of God in, in, in a remarkable way. Men could grow their hair, but they were not obliged to tie it up if they did. Now, the Greek that attitude was different. So, they would have scarves to cover their faces. And in Paul's day, uh, men would have worn short hair. And so, they would have found the idea of covering a head in worship odd. In Greek culture, women had long hair up, similar to Jewish, but prostitutes had very short hair. So Paul's trying to kind of find a way through here to not offend anybody. You remember the the conversation about meat um, that had been sacrificed to idols? Yes. So in the marketplace, they could buy meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And obviously the question had been asked to Paul, "Can, can we eat it? And Paul's answer, really, in summary, is you can because these idols are meaningless but if you eating this meat is going to offend somebody whose faith is younger than yours somebody who's new to the faith then don't do it so he was kind of saying some things are permissible but you need to consider others and i think that's what he's doing here and so when he talks about head coverings which again is not an easy one to translate it can be translated and understood that men should have short hair I'm covered in worship and women should cover their head. The Greek words are really not simple. There's a mix of words for head, for shorn, for covered. And to be honest, we would just bore everybody if we went into all of that. So, in short, what Paul is saying is wear head coverings so that you don't cause offense to others or make it difficult in the culture of the day. We don't have that culture. For us to insist in our worship, that women cover their heads, is more likely to cause offence or to put up a barrier to people who would say, these people are really strange. They Women go to church and they all have to wear hats and really, you know. And so what we're, we're trying to kind of be inoffensive. In doing that, we look different from Paul's being inoffensive. Does that make sense?
0: I think so. But also, as I say about my brain cells, it leads on to another question about someone I actually do know and she recently said to me that she now wears a head covering every time she goes to church. So naturally I said, why? And she said, well, because God had told her to do that. Now, I'm not going to argue on that point, but it was then as if she was then justifying it afterwards by saying, well, you know, I've been studying up on it, I've been reading the Bible, and actually clearly states in the Bible that we're supposed to be doing that. And I was going, ooh, Uh, choose your battles and this wasn't one of them i'll bring in genie on that so uh come on genie i'll introduce to my friend what would you say to her please
1: i would say that the the passage which comes from 1 corinthians 11 is genuinely very confusing but that i do think paul is trying to find a way so that the worship of the day and the way that worship is held particularly in this case head coverings are not a barrier to the gospel i think that's his heart in this passage this is kind of a rather strange bit about the angels. So he says in verse 10, it's for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. That's really confusing. And it's, yeah, again, without going into all of the language, it would seem that what Paul is saying, that the spiritual authority given to women was foreshadowed by angels before Jesus' birth and at the resurrection because it's actually the, what, the words that he it's using, it's not about veiling your head, it's actually about a word that's giving women authority. And of course, in the, in the birth stories, the angels bring the message to Elizabeth and to Mary, rather than the men, other than in, in dreams. Um, and in the resurrection, it's the angels who appear to, the, well, the angels, among other things, appear to the women who are the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. So actually, it's probable that Paul's saying something quite affirming here. But again, we're getting tied up in not knowing the context. The bottom line, we don't know. Since Paul, in general, operates uh, in a way that facilitates the gospel and doesn't make the gospel a stumbling block, I think we can assume that over head coverings, his heart would have been the same. But Which is? Which is dressed in a way that is not going to be problematic to anybody else either in worship or in hearing the gospel. There's a similar passage, isn't there, in in 1 Timothy 2, where he says, I want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds. Now, braiding in that culture was associated with prostitutes. That was something they would do, would braid their hair. And pearls were very expensive, as I presume they are now, never had any, and ostentatious. So again, his motive here is concern. The way that you dress ladies in worship needs to be ways that will not be a problem for other people, either by the misconstruing that you are a lady of the night when you're not, or by dressing in a way that is just showing, oh, look, I'm very wealthy. Yeah, That's not to be your heart in worship.
0: Well, I hope your husband's listening, because I know what you're going to get for Christmas now the letter P and ends an L with a er in the middle.
1: Oh, I wouldn't actually
0: want them, so... Oh, you let him off the hook. Definitely. It goes back to context as everything again, doesn't it, on this?
1: It does, it does. And, you know, as we kind of gently wind ourselves to a close, let's kind of come back to Aristotle saying that females were deformed males, he did say that, and Paul says men and women are one in Christ. Jewish custom was that Uh, Only men counted for the rule of 10. And Paul says the women are to fully participate. They're to pray, they're to prophesy, they're to learn. Women are inferior in reason, Aristotle said. Paul encourages them to study. As an aside, Stoics said that sex was harmful and a distraction. Paul says it's a gift from God. Aristotle says men are created to command and women to obey. And Paul says it's about mutually responding. To each other's needs. This is a new way of living
0: that Paul is talking about. The Greek way of living at the time versus the new Christian way of living. Yeah. But he didn't want to rock the boat too much, whereby the Roman army would come in and say, "Or you this way, son."
1: Yeah. You know, I think Paul was kind of saying, "Let's get the gospel really embedded in people's lives. Let it transform as it should and still does." and other things will flow from that but you have to get that basics there and that would have been at risk had he rocked too many boats too soon we need to hold on to the important bits the bits that transform people's lives who was jesus you know that he was was and is god he is our rescuer his birth his death his resurrection the fact that even now he's praying for us in heaven the scripture tells us those things are central and they change lives Those truths have changed my life. Jesus has changed my life. Other stuff, yes, it's important. And yes, we need to talk about it. But at the end of the day, it's not what makes us the people that we are.
0: And so to summarise it all, please.
1: To summarise it all, take Paul in, in his entirety of his teaching. Don't pluck a verse out, bearing in mind that that verse had a context and had a specific use of language. Look more carefully. Rather than just make an assumption.
0: Going right to the very beginning again. The the church wanted the two, two what'd you say to them in closing?
1: Well, I think one of the things actually I'd say is is look at the way in which God blesses the ministry of women. And that is clearly the case. And if God was so opposed to it as all of that, would he be really blessing the way that he is? Many wonderful women's ministries in all kinds of ways. Not just talking now about ordained women in ministry. But women who in all sorts of ways bring the gospel to all sorts of contexts, you know, a well-being cafe or some of the other extraordinary works that are happening are signs, I think, that God is at work and that he's at work through women.
0: See, I said summarising, and I should shut up now, but <laughs> I remember when I became a Christian, that was one of the first questions I asked, well, how come then you're going to let Gladys Airwood and all these other famous missionaries who are women go out? And the response was, ah, yes, because there weren't enough men to do it. The women had to step up.
1: Well, there's enough men. Well, there's never enough men or enough women for the gospel, which needs to be as widely spoken about as possible. But at the end of the day, we are all one in Christ Jesus. That's, I guess, where I want to end then, Martin. We're all one.
0: Jeannie, thank you so much indeed. We joked about it in the past, about our lawyers talking to your lawyers about setting this up. It's good that it came to fruition. Thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Always a pleasure, Martin.